Well, good morning, everyone. Now, is it just me, or does Anna Moran sound like that uh, that Disney song, that that one that sings Frozen? Did, did, did that occur? Did that occur to anybody else, or just me? And she's the musician, so makes me feel better. All right. Well, we decided that it would be a good idea to let our guest preachers, who would normally be up here on a Sunday morning, to spend this particular Sunday with their own church families. And so, uh, that being said, once again, I want to thank Linda, who every week carries the burden of filling the pulpit, which is not an insignificant task. I speak from experience. You're constantly thinking during the week, what do we do if so-and-so can't show up? So it's a heavy burden, and, uh, and she does it well, and it allows us to come to church every Sunday morning and not give it another thought. We just come here and enjoy our Sunday routine. And uh, so, so thank you, Linda, and thank you, everybody else who has been carrying a, uh, a, a tremendous load, uh, extra, extra additional responsibilities, all the different uh, group leaders, to keep this church operating. So thank you. And welcome again to our Resurrection Sunday service. That being said, I'm going to warn you ahead of time that I'm going to be referring to this as Resurrection Sunday and Easter synonymously. I'm not trying to make a point. It just it just comes out easier. And I will... Uh, I will uh, bank on the fact that we're the evangelical free denomination that uh, majors on the majors and not on the minors, so you won't hold that against me. Um, if you have attended this church for a long time, during the, especially during the Pastor Chris era, which most of us have, you will remember that he often began Resurrection Sunday with, He is risen, right? No, no, that was just rhetorically. Don't, don't. <laughs> Let's let me let me let me get something situated here in the beginning. I'll be I'll be saying that many times this morning. <laughs> don't repeat it. And that being said, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to tell you, poor Eric and Paul. I sent them a, both a text yesterday. I said, hey, when you guys get to church tomorrow, and you you open up a church. Please don't say he is risen because it's going to kind of be awkward for my sermon. And so Eric, this morning, Eric said, well, I mean, I'll try, but, you know, it just may come out. So if you're, if you're, if you're all sitting there uh, thinking, why, why didn't he open the service with that? Well, it's because I asked him not to. In fact, in fact, Lisa, she told me yesterday, she said, when you get up there, you better say he is risen. <laughs> and, and she knew nothing about the content of my sermon. I said, well, maybe I will, maybe I won't. Um, but nonetheless, Pastor Chris would start out the sermon like that, and he would expect us to uh, you know, give our response. And I don't know if you remember, but occasionally, I, I remember at least a couple of times when he would say he has risen, um, we either wouldn't respond quickly enough or loudly enough, and he would repeat it. Anybody remember that? He would do that? And so, uh, you know, the second time around, you would hope that you, uh, you know, you, 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 you met, the, uh, met the bar. Um, but this morning, we're going to ask the question, so what? Okay? If some well-meaning person says to you, he is risen, I ask you, so what? 
does it make any difference that Jesus has risen? Of course, my, my so what is to make a point. Uh, I, because I really do think there's some uneasiness, even in the church, when somebody says he is risen and you say he is risen indeed. I think there's, there's some uneasiness because it comes at least as much out of a feeling of obligation as it does to a fact that we should hold dear. To this end, this morning, I'm going to cover three points. One, why is the significance of Easter more difficult to define than the significance of Christmas and Good Friday? Second, we'll address the question of what would life be like had Jesus not been raised from the dead? And finally, we'll look at some evidence on how we know that he is risen. First, the reasons on why uh, the importance of Easter is difficult to explain. And let me be clear, I'm not doubting that everybody in here, if I said what happened on Easter, you could tell me that Jesus rose from being dead three days. I know everybody could do that. But we're going to, we're going to ask specifically, why does it matter? So first we're going to look at the meaning of Christmas. We're going to look at the meaning of Good Friday. Very quickly, we're not going to go into much detail here. If you'll open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, very famous, very famous passage. This was, uh, this was written 700 years prior to Jesus' birth. 700 years. So, I mean, just, you know, when you, when you talk about 700 years B.C., it just doesn't mean as much. But if you think back to, you know, if something is written in 1300 A.D. that happened today, it would be very impressive. So, if we're all there at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, this is the meaning of Christmas. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's it, the meaning of Christmas. A human male child will be born, will be given to us, but he will also bear all the titles of God himself. This baby will be called Almighty God. And that's the meaning of Christmas. That's all there is to it. Even children get it somehow. Christmas is easy. Let's move on to Good Friday. What does it mean that Jesus died on the cross if you're a follower of Christ? That's Christianity 101, right? That's the basics. But we're going to go back to Isaiah again. Go over to Isaiah 53, verse 4. And while you're turning there, I want you to think about something. This is totally off subject, but I want you to think about something while we're reading this Isaiah 53. We're all familiar with the, the sinner's prayer. You know, when you, when you run into somebody who, and you share the gospel and they say, well, you know, maybe I will do that. And so uh, how do I do it? And so you, uh, you offer them a kind of an elementary sinner's prayer, right? I think we're all familiar with that. And usually a sinner's prayer will go something like this. It will say, uh, you know, repeat after me. And then you'll say uh, something like, Jesus, I believe in you. Thank you for dying for me, right? Sound familiar, the sinner's prayer? Um, and uh, thank you for offering me a relationship with you. And I'm not, I'm not uh, you know, uh, getting down on the sinner's prayer, 
But when we read this from Isaiah 53, I want you to just think for a second. This is the perfect sinner's prayer right here in Isaiah 53. It can't be said any better. And this is our meaning of Good Friday. I know we're familiar with it, but I just want you to think about it also from the other perspective of what a fantastic sinner's prayer this is. So here we go. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All like sheep we have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's Good Friday. There is nothing you can add to that. There is no words you can add to that to make it more clear, to make it more meaningful. That's Good Friday. And now we come to Easter, universally uh, lifted up and proclaimed as the pinnacle of Christian holidays. And we all know what happened on Easter, but what does it mean? Why is it important? And to answer that question, I'm going to go to a, I'm going to refer to a movie, I think a movie which most of us, if not all of us, have seen, and that is It's a Wonderful Life. Everybody's seen that? It's a Christmas movie. I know it's a Christmas movie. But I, I, I'm going to that. And if you'll remember toward the end of the movie, you had George, who's played by Jimmy Stewart, is depressed and considering suicide. Remember, he's going to jump off a bridge into an icy river. And then along comes Clarence, the angel, who's in training. And he's able to miraculously show George what life would be like if George hadn't lived at all. Remember that? And so during the next several of the minutes, next several minutes of the movie, we uh, see how George's formerly friendly, quiet, well-ordered town has changed because he hasn't lived there. So some of the changes that immediately get your attention is that it's dark, it's nighttime, and there are police sirens blaring in the background during that scene. You know, just, just, just letting you know that it's a dangerous place now. There's neon, neon uh, lights, signs flashing everywhere continually, advertising uh, bars and uh, drinking and dancing and cheap thrills. And uh, there's disorderly crowds on the sidewalks, people yelling at each other. It's chaotic. It's just horrible. If you haven't seen the movie... Just picture the city of downtown Memphis on a Friday night and you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. So that, when George sees that, then he sees what a difference he had made and he, he, he wants to go back to, the old, to his life and he sees that he really did have a wonderful life and he has made a difference. And so what I want to do this morning, something similar to that, I want to roll back time and I want to roll back the stone in front of Jesus' tomb with his body still inside. I want to ask the question, what if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead? What if his body was still in there on that Sunday morning when the women came along and as it says in Mark chapter 16, they brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. But what if the text went on? What if it went on to say, and after finding his body, they carried out their plans and anointed the body? 
And what if Jesus' bones are still in that tomb today? Would it make any difference? The first and most obvious problem we would have to consider if Jesus did not rise from the dead is what about all those verses in the Gospels where Jesus specifically refers to his rising from the dead after three days? For instance, in Matthew 16, the Bible says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then we would have to conclude that although he was correct in much of his prophecy, he got some of it wrong too. And furthermore, and I don't mean to be irreverent here, but really how difficult would it be to predict that Jesus would end up dying at the hands of the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders? I mean, how often do you read verses like this in John chapter 10? The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. If you were living in Galilee or Judea during those times from A.D. 30 to 33, and were just observing the day-to-day events, surrounding the life of Jesus, I think it might become rather obvious. We would likely be thinking to ourselves, you know, that guy's not going to last long around here. My point is, it was the, part, it was the last part of Jesus' statement where he says on the third day he will be raised, that, when true, seals his legitimacy. But this morning we're asking, what if Jesus got the first part right, the predictable part, but the last part wrong? Here's another verse from John chapter 16. Jesus, while speaking to his disciples about sending the Holy Spirit after he he has departed, he says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper meaning the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. Now, this is the important part. But if I go, I will send him to you. Dead people don't don't send things back. If Jesus didn't rise, then Jesus did not send the Holy Spirit to the disciples, and furthermore, he didn't send the Holy Spirit to you either. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, you have been imagining the presence of the Holy Spirit's influence in your life, and that just makes you weird. And there are countless other references outside the Gospels referring to the resurrection. The New Testament is loaded with them. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And finally, the writer to Hebrews in chapter 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Now let let me repeat, just in case you weren't paying attention in the beginning, This is all hypothetical. 
I'm not saying Jesus didn't rise from the dead. I'm saying, how would our lives be different? Would, would they be impacted at all if Jesus had not risen from the dead? What is the meaning behind Easter? But anyways, I hope you're beginning to notice that the Bible thinks Jesus rising from the dead is a really big deal. So if he didn't rise from the dead and all the verses making reference to his resurrection are not true, then you have to ask yourself, well, what else in the Bible is wrong? In Luke Luke chapter 16, Jesus puts his seal of authenticity on the entire Old Testament when he says, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And I have a special appreciation for that verse. You probably should too. If anyone ever questions the absolute truth of everything in the Old Testament, every single letter of the original manuscript, I just go to the verse in Luke or the parallel uh, verse in Matthew chapter 5 and I just say, hey look, Jesus said it was all true. So I believe it's all true. End of argument. I don't have to memorize any of the academic arguments about the canonization of the Old Testament scriptures. I just say what Jesus said. And I think along the same line, Jesus very specifically calls out some of the most scoffed at events in the Old Testament and stamps each of them with his personal seal of authenticity. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus refers to Jonah being three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. And in doing so, Jesus stamps that accurate. Matthew chapter 19, Adam and Eve made male and female, created in the beginning. Jesus stamps all of that accurate. And finally, Noah and his floating zoo. In Matthew chapter 24, the day when Noah entered the ark, the flood came and swept away all the people in the entire world except eight. Jesus stamps that as accurate. If you have any dispute with any part of any of those commonly ridiculed stories, you have a much more serious problem on your hands than just not believing those stories. You are kind of like the man who considers his nagging cough to be a bit of a nuisance, not knowing that he has a malignant cancer spreading throughout his lungs and his cough is only a symptom. But back to our imaginary situation. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, we can no longer place our absolute faith in the truth of the Bible. I want to to let that sink in for a second. How important to you is it that the Bible is without error? If he has not been raised, then this book is on the same level as the Mormons, Book of Mormon, and the Muslims, Koran. And furthermore, if the Bible has errors, then Christianity is, is, Christianity is, is on the same level of every other religion in the world. 
It's like the Unitarians might say, it's just one stream of many streams leading to the ocean. Go ahead, roll your eyes. I, I can't help it when it happens. I, I, right. But if he is not risen from the dead, if his body is still in the tomb, you can go back to choosing your favorite sounding religion to follow. Or just take a combination of several parts of the religion and make up your own. But we're not quite done exploring what life would be like if Jesus had not been raised from the dead. Do you pray? Do you have emergency prayer sessions? And I'm not referring to the type of prayers when you're driving in your car. I'm not referring to the types of Thanksgiving prayers you give before meals. And I'm not referring even to your morning devotional prayers. I'm talking about the type of prayers when it's 2 o'clock in the morning and you find yourself in such a state of overwhelming anxiety and stress that you're sure your nervous system can't take anymore. Perhaps you've just found out one of your children has turned away from the Lord. Maybe one of your children's marriage is in trouble. Maybe yours is in trouble. Or perhaps the culture in this country has just taken another giant leap towards Sodom and Gomorrah. You feel like the devil must have the entire country in a hypnotic trance. And you know the only available comfort at 2 o'clock in the morning resides in heaven at the right hand of the throne and from someone who has experienced and triumphed over every imaginable anxiety. As the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. He gets our situation. So you get out of bed, you go to your knees in prayer, knowing that Jesus can completely identify with your situation. He can bring you the peace that transcends all understanding but not if he's still in the tomb. If he did not rise on that Sunday morning, don't waste your time getting out of bed. There's nobody who can help you. The last area I want to consider is your sins. If you're like me, you take a great deal of comfort in the fact that Jesus died and paid the debt for your sins. All the debt. But if Jesus is still in the tomb... It is not finished. Your debt has not been paid. Your sins are still yours. You need to go back to the cross. You need to dig through that giant heap of garbage there of sins. You need to find your sins. You need to pick them up and take them because they're yours again. You now carry them forever. If He is... If Jesus is not risen from the dead and returned in a resurrected body, none of it is true. This book is not true. Christianity is a fraud. And your sins are not forgiven. When, when I was growing up, in fact, for the first 55 years of my life, my family had this kind of oral tradition and belief that we had some Indian 
American Indian blood in us. And that turns out to be one of the most common myths in American families. They have Indian blood in them. And we, and we used to, I mean, for, I remember many times as a, as a kid and even growing up, we would, we would look at pictures of ancestors on my father's side. That's where the Indians supposedly came from. We said, man, can't you just see the Indian in that person? At my, uh, my grandfather, my uh, father's side specifically, he looked so much like an Indian. Whenever anybody would look at one of his pictures, they would say, boy, can't you just picture him setting up on a horse with uh, one of those uh, feather headdress things on? I mean, he, he really did look like just a full-blooded Indian. That was the topic of many conversations. And then somebody had the bright idea of sending off one of those ancestral DNA tests that came out a few years ago. In fact, I think they sent out a couple of them, just to be sure. When they came back, we had absolutely zero Zero drops of Indian blood in our veins. None. If Jesus is still in the tomb, it's like getting back the results of a spiritual DNA test. You locate the section on the form that says, how much of Jesus do you have in your, in your DNA? And it indicates exactly zero if He has not risen. Now, no doubt, somebody, maybe several of you are in here thinking, this guy's gone too far. Jesus could have died for my sins without being raised from the dead. He lived a very moral life. He did a lot of miracles. He spoke more profoundly than any other human ever. I think you've carried this too far. You've made this resurrection thing more consequential than it needs to be. But have I? Why don't we go see what the Bible itself has to say about it? The Bible has a section where the Apostle Paul asks this exact question, and then he answers it. So go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we will see what Paul says the implications are of Jesus not being resurrected. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the famous the gospel definition chapter. If you've, ever, if you've ever asked yourself, what is the gospel? Just what is it? This chapter tells you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're, we're going to read a few sections out of this. We're going to skip a few sections. Verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Okay, that's the Gospel story. But now I want you to notice how much more time He is going to spend on the resurrection than he did on the death and burial. Not that the death and burial are not important, but the fact of the resurrection proves the truth of the death and burial. So we move on. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time 
most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Did you know that the resurrected Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time? At one time, 500 people. And the book of Acts tells us that he appeared over, over a time period of 40 days. So it's not, like, it's not like the only evidence of a resurrected Jesus is uh, you know, a couple of guys on a crowded, crowded Jerusalem and you know, one of them turns to the other and says, hey, did you see that? No, what? Over there, over there by that uh, clay pot salesman. I think I just saw Jesus in the crowd. But then he slipped back into the crowd. And then from there, these guys are, hey, praise the Lord, resurrected Jesus. It's not like that. We don't have just somebody thinking they saw the resurrected Jesus. 500 people at one time saw the resurrected Jesus. Jump down to verse 14. And here's where we see what Paul has to say about the, the relevance of the resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Now get this. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Look at verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most, we are people most to be pitied. To summarize what Paul's saying here, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is empty, void of purpose, futile, you're still in your sins, you are to be pitied. You get the feeling that Paul thinks the resurrection is important? I think so. He has been raised, and the apostle carefully lays out the sequence of, of his appearances as factual evidence. Even the timing of the appearances is important to Paul. All right, we're close to being done. I just want to talk a little bit about time. When you're young, you dislike time because it goes too slow. You spend all your time waiting impatiently for different milestones to pass. Different milestones to arrive. When you get older, you dislike time because it goes too fast. You sign and date a check and you're left there scratching your head saying, is it April already? But there's another interesting feature of time that affects us all in the same way, no matter how old you are. And that's the way that time seals events in history, sometimes even resulting in grave regrets. Just recently, in the last couple of weeks, somebody said to me, you know, I lay awake at night thinking, if I could just go back and relive those two hours, how I would do things differently. 
And I'm sure all of us have had similar thoughts like that. But you can't. The passage of time seals events into history permanently. What do you think the thief on the cross, the one that rejected Christ, what do you think he is saying to himself over and over again for the rest of eternity? This perhaps? If I could only get back one hour, it would have meant the difference between heaven and hell. Is there anyone in this sanctuary who will spend eternity with that same regret? But that sealing aspect of time also works into our favor. Consider the resurrection of Christ. The event proving the truth of everything in this book. God loves us. Be born again. Follow Christ. Your sins are atoned for. Heaven is the destination of all who follow Christ. No power on earth can go back and undo the resurrection. The sealing of time is impenetrable. Government forces can can forbid us from mentioning the resurrection. They can erase it from all written documents. But they can't go back and change the fact that it happened. We not only believe in something that is absolutely true, but it's also something that can never be altered. The next time you're prompted with a He is risen, consider that those three words confirm the most important event in history. And your response to those three words confirms your eternal destiny. Now, in memory of Pastor Chris, let's try this. He is risen. All right, fantastic. Let's pray. Father, thank You for leaving us with absolute proof that our faith in Jesus Christ is based on real evidence and is sealed permanently by history. May Your name be glorified forever. Amen.